silence of the lambs, the silence of the lamb, okay? So let's do this, since you got to sit down a lot more than normal when I'm out here, I'm going to make you stand one more time this morning, and we're going to read these verses together in reverence of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, just two verses, verse 60 and 61. Mark 14, 60 and 61. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61. But he kept silent and answered nothing. Lord, help us today to draw from this word something that will encourage us and grow us and point us to Jesus, and we'll give you all the thanks for that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Like I said, I want to preach this message titled, The Silence of the Lamb. We read from a portion of the Gospel of Mark. We see this account in the Gospels where Jesus is brought into a trial that is nothing more than a farce. They get these men to come and make up false accusations just with the intentions of proving or trying to prove that Jesus is guilty so they can justify the condemnation that he deserves. And so we pick it up in these verses, and I just kind of want to use this as a springboard. But let me ask you a question. If you were brought before a group of people, and you were wrongly accused, you were mistreated, mishandled, and lied about the way that Jesus was, how many of us could honestly say that we would stand there and not say a word? Most of us would retaliate. Most of us would try to defend ourselves. Most of us would have no problem speaking out and saying that this is unjustified, that these are lies, that these men are telling stories that are not true, and we would try to somehow work our way out of that situation. But Jesus had come for this very purpose. He had come to go to the cross to lay down His life. And it made no difference if these men were going to falsely accuse Him or if they were going to use some other means. Jesus had one purpose in mind, and that was to lay down His life for the sins of the world. That He would go to that cross for you and I this morning is an amazing thing that I hope we never lose our awe of. And so Jesus is here in this situation, and he's silent. He's not saying anything. And as I read those words this week, I thought about how that so often is the case, or at least it feels like it's the case in our life, doesn't it? Doesn't it sometimes feel like God is silent when we need him, when we're seeking him, when we're questioning him? Where are you, God? A lot of people say, oh, well, I don't, I don't like to admit that, or I don't know that I would ever say that to God. You may or may have not ever verbally said it, but I can guarantee you felt it in your heart that you've wondered at times why God seems silent. I watched a movie this week. Maybe some of you have seen it. The movie is called Silent. It's about two Jesuit priests in the 1700s that go to Japan. It's a really good movie uh, if you get a chance to see it. In Japan in the 17th century, Christianity was outlawed by the general there. And they had all sorts of terrible ways to persecute Christians to try to ultimately place so much fear in people's lives that Christianity would become extinct in Japan. And so they started out on this, this murderous campaign of just killing people and torturing them and torturing them. But do you know what happened as they tortured these Christians? There were about 300,000 Christians in Japan at this time. And they started to systematically kill and abuse them and torture them. And you know what happened to the church as the persecution took place? 
It grew. So often we see it in the Bible and we see it all the time. It is persecution that causes the church to grow. I believe the reason why it's so hard to reach people in America is because we don't know what persecution is. We've got it so good that when I stand up here and preach to you about suffering and persecution, the worst thing you probably ever had is somebody laugh at you because you carried your Bible under your arm. And I'm not saying that's not persecution to some degree, but we have no idea what our brothers and sisters face in third world countries about persecution. But I believe we will one day. I believe we will one day here in this country say, Pastor, I don't think that will ever happen here. I do. I do. Unless the Lord calls us out of here before it gets that bad, I believe we'll reach a time where Christianity will be so hated and despised in this country that we will be persecuted on a real level for doing what we're doing here today. You can take that or leave it, but I believe it's the case. But in this movie, it was absolutely the case. They were persecuting, torturing, and killing these people. And so as they saw the church growing, they decided, well, this isn't working too well. We're going to try something different. We are going to strike the shepherds and see if we can get the sheep to scatter that way. So they began to put $500. Now, this is in the the 17th century, in the 1600s. 500 pieces of silver price on the heads of any priest that would be turned in. So you can imagine what happens. They start turning in these priests. And so to make a long story short, these two priests that are over there, the last two priests left in Japan. And they are looking for their mentor who had went over there, and they had heard that he had denounced the faith and and become an atheist. And they were looking for him. And they're torturing these people, and they've, they're going through so much suffering. And, and the climax, one of the scenes in the movie, they've got one of the priests locked up in this cage, and he can just hear these people outside in the streets suffering as they're being tortured and killed. And they've had him there for days just listening to this. And they keep telling him, all you have to do is denounce your faith, and all this will end. They're suffering because of you, because you will not denounce your faith. They're going through this. And over and over, they're just beating this in his head day and night. And in the midst of this, as he's laying in this prison cell, listening to, trying to listen and trying to pray and trying to remember the things that God has said to him, he says these words. He says, Lord, why are you silent? Why are you always silent? In the midst of all his grief and all his pain, that is all that he could muster to say. And you say, well, man, that's pretty harsh. But you know what? I see people in the Bible saying the same thing. And if you're honest, you may have said something like that or that very thing in your life. In Job chapter 30, verse 20, listen to what Job says. We, we probably know about his suffering and all he went through. Job said, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. Have you ever felt that way in your life? Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, this is a Psalm of David a messianic psalm, so Jesus would say these words himself, but originally this is David speaking, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? In the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This is David, the man after God's own heart. And he is seeking God. He is looking for God to answer. And he says, I keep crying out to you and I don't hear anything. Why is it that God seems silent to us? Is he really silent? Is he inactive? Is he on vacation? Does he not care anymore about his people? What's going on in those moments? Why don't we hear from God? Well, the unbeliever would answer and just simply say, well, God is silent because he isn't there. 
There is no God. And maybe, if you're going to be honest today, maybe that's where you're at. We don't pretend that only perfect people come into this building, guys. If that's your struggle today, I'm glad you're here. If you're wrestling to, and wondering if there is really a God, if all of this is true, or we've just been deluded and deceived and this is all made up, welcome today. I'm glad you're here. We are glad you're here. But maybe you're a believer and you say, I know that God exists, but I still struggle at times understanding why I don't hear Him. And I think when we say that, it's not that we're saying that God doesn't exist. As believers, we absolutely believe that He exists. But I think it's when our feelings and our emotions and maybe our expectations are at a certain level that have not been met that we start to feel that way. Because a lot of times, things don't always look as we think they ought to look, and they don't happen in the way that we think they ought to happen. And I thought about just an example right now. We're all sitting in this room, stationary, yet we're on a big ball of dirt that's spinning a 1,000 miles an hour rotating, going around the sun at 11,000 miles an hour in orbit. It doesn't look that way, though, does it? As we sit here, I don't feel like I'm going that fast. That's how fast my wife drives. And when we're in the car, I know what's going on. But right now, I don't feel that way. Pray for me. She's, I'm in trouble now, right? She's back, there. She's back there. Give me the eye right now. But my point is sometimes what's happening, that's what's happening right now, guys. We are spinning and we are orbiting at that speed, but it doesn't feel that way. And a lot of times when God appears silent, that's how it feels. But is that really what he's doing? Is that really the case? So I want to look today... I want to use our text from Mark as a springboard. Verse 61 said, but he kept silent and he answered nothing. And I want us to look and say, well, when God appears silent, when we feel like he's silent, when he's not doing what we thought or think he should, is he really silent? Not how we feel, but actually what is he doing? I want to give you three things this morning. Number one, his word is sufficient. When I speak of his word, I'm speaking of the 66 books contained in the Holy Bible. His word is is sufficient. He has definitely at one point in time spoken, and these words have been recorded for us. And because the Bible is living and active, He is still speaking today. These aren't words that were just said thousands of years ago that are now irrelevant or not applicable to people today. God still speaks through and by this book today. Or at least that is the claim of Christianity throughout the centuries. I'm not expecting you necessarily to just take my word for that. But that is the claim that the Bible makes for itself and the claim that the church has stood on since the Bible was completed and the New Testament church began. Because when we say God is silent, what we're saying is, God, we want something tangible. We want something that we can touch. We want something that we can see. We want to put our finger on it and say, this was God. I asked and he did this and I can show you. I can point you to it. That's what we are saying that we want when God seems silent. We want an answer. God, I was very specific about what I prayed for. This is exactly what I've asked, and this is exactly what I expect. Now, if you don't do it, I will conclude that you're silent. Or maybe we simply say, I just want to experience something. I want to feel something. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when God does things that we can see and touch. There are things that answer just like we asked Him to do. There are times when we feel things. 
We feel God's presence. I'm not saying that we completely detach from those things. But more often than not, God is going to give answers and speak through His Word, not in the ways that you expect Him to, not in the ways that you want Him to. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says this, All Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I'm just going to stop at that part of it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theonistos is the word. God breathed. The ESV uses that translation. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's literally what that word inspiration in the Greek means. To breathe out. When God created Adam out of the dust of the ground, the Bible says that He breathed His Spirit into him, and he became a living soul. He breathed life into Adam, and he breathes out the words of life through his scriptures. The cry of the Reformation, when the church had strayed away from God and went through the dark ages in the middle medieval times, one of the five solas was sola scriptura. Scripture alone. It was a call back to the church to rest and stand on the Word of God alone. And I believe we need that again today. There is so much foolishness and so much false teaching, and so much deception today, because everybody wants some kind of experience rather than just trusting the Word of God. We have gotten so far, I won't say we here, but so many churches and so many Christians have strayed so far from the Word of God that we will believe anything and everything except when a man opens up this book and just preaches, Thus saith the Lord. Then, when, when we find churches that do that, we say, well, that's kind of boring and that's kind of dull. I think I'll go to the church with the slide. You know, when they baptize people, they have them come in on a water slide and there's lights and the pastor tells jokes all day. He never opens the Bible, but he tells good stories that I can relate to. And I leave out of there feeling so good about myself. Listen, I love you and I'm glad you're here, but we're not here today to worship you. Amen. We're just not. The focus of our worship is Jesus, and perhaps the reason why this is boring to you is because you don't know Him. Maybe you would rather worship yourself. I would too in the flesh. I like to worship myself. I like to make myself the center of attention. That's what our flesh wants. But that's not why we're here. We're here to crucify the flesh. We're here to get ourselves out of the way so that we can worship the one true God who is worthy of worship. And that's who the Bible points us to. Anytime somebody opens this book and points to other people, they're misinterpreting the Scripture. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is about His plan of salvation to redeem sinners who are lost, which all of us are without Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the good news is that Jesus came, that whosoever will can come and take of the water of life freely. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is not one of you in this room today that can't be reached by Jesus if you will accept His sacrifice by faith. That's all it takes. The Scripture is enough. His Word is sufficient. I know we're not Reformed in this church necessarily or Presbyterian or anything like that, but the Westminster Confession of Faith is a wonderful confession of faith, and I believe that what it says about the Scripture is wholeheartedly true, and even as Baptists we would say amen to this. It says of the Scriptures, the whole counsel of God. Remember what Timothy said, said all Scripture is inspired by God. The whole counsel of God contained in this book is what it's saying, 
concerning all things necessary for His glory. Not about us. All of this about His glory. Man's salvation, faith, and how to live this Christian life. That's what it says. Is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. That means either it plainly tells you what to do or there's enough principles in this book that you can see clearly what you're supposed to do. One of the two. It says that unto which nothing at any time is to be added. Now boy, this would get this would probably this would probably offend three quarters of the churches active today. This is what it says. Unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. We see it every week. Lord, give me a fresh revelation. Give me a fresh anointing. Open up your Bible. There's something new every time I read this art. Not that it changes, but that God's Word is alive and active. And every time I study this book, I see more. I I grow more. I understand more about who He is. This is timeless. And it's so deep that you would never be able to come near getting to the bottom of it. But we have rejected this for all sorts of nonsense and all sorts of foolishness. Listen, we don't worship the Bible, but we do worship the author of the Bible. We should worship the author of the Bible. Because you've got to decide this morning. I've said His Word is sufficient. I can't spend as much time as I'd like to on that. But I will say this. Either this book is 100% from Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God, or this is an absolute waste of time, what we're doing here today. All of you got up, got dressed, and came here to waste an hour or two of your day. Because why in the world would you come and listen to some guy stand up here and preach out an old book that's just the words of men and the opinions of people and not the inspired revelation of God? This can't help you at all if this is not the Word of God. But if this is the Word of God, we ought to bow in holy reverence and say, God is speaking. When the pastor stands and reads this book, you are hearing from God. You say, God is silent. Every time you read this book, you're hearing God. Now, we may not feel that way, and we may not understand that. We may not have the fear of God enough to have enough sense to know that. But when this book is preached or read or sung or whatever you want to do with it, you are hearing from God. He is speaking to you. He is speaking today. In the Old Testament, there were prophets. And the prophets went and spoke for God. The word today, prophet, simply means what it did in the Old Testament. To speak forth. We don't have prophets today giving new revelations and adding to Scripture. We have prophets today which are pastors standing in the pulpit and preaching the Word of God. We are declaring to you, thus saith the Lord. God speaks through the men in His church, through the women that teach Sunday school. Whoever opens this book and proclaims the Word of God is speaking for God. That is an awesome responsibility that a lot of people should not take upon themselves. Because if you're not going to rightly divide the word of truth, you should sit down and remain quiet. The Bible says to study to show yourself approved. A workman of God that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Too many people stand up and say what they want to say rather than what God has already said. God speaks through His word. His word is sufficient. Number two, His will is specific. 
His will is specific. Not only do we say, God, speak to me. I want to hear you. I need to hear you. Show me something. Move and do something for me. We say, God, show me what you want me to do with my life. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you're in that season right now. I have no idea what God wants me to do with my life. Maybe that's where you're at. Again, welcome. We are glad you're here if you're struggling with that. We want to pray for you. We want to help encourage you. We want to try to give you an opportunity to see maybe what God wants from you because His will is specific. We ask, Lord, show me the will for my life. Show me your will for my life. But let me ask you, do you really think that's the right thing to ask or is that the right thing to ask? I don't think it is. I think sometimes we ask the wrong questions, which is why we don't get the right answer. In Psalm 143, verse 10... Look what the psalmist writes there. What's he say? Teach me to do your will. He doesn't say, show me your will. He says, teach me your will. Teach me to do your will. That means to me, reading that in the past tense, his will has already been established. It's already, you, it's already laid out for us. It's not that we have to try to figure it out. It's that we need to learn what it is and then do it. Do you see the difference? We say, what do you want for my life? He's already shown us what He wants out of our life. The problem is, we're not looking for those things. We're asking different types of questions so we don't get the answer that we need when God says, I want to teach you what my will is. Look, I put a couple of scriptures on this next slide, and I just want you to look at some of these. When we talk about the will of God, put that next slide up that says the different scriptures. Here's the first one. Give thanks... In all circumstances. See that? For this is what? The will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He says, number one, my will for you is to give thanks, not just when things are good, not just when it works out the way you want it to work out. Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God. God's will for us is to be a thankful people. One of the reasons why we don't hear God speak is because we are so ungrateful for all the things that He's done before. Do you think He's going to give you more if you don't appreciate what He's already done? We are always looking over the fence for the next new thing. I, I want this. I want that. Oh, my, look, the neighbor got something new. I better go out and get me something new. Right? And so we can't give thanks for the good things that God has done because we're always concerned about what's next. Stop for just a moment today, please. Go home today and take a few minutes and look around your house at the people and the things and the health or whatever it is that you can name and give thanks today for everything that God has done for you. He has blessed us so much. And it doesn't even have to be good things. There are times when we go through suffering and trials and it's awful at the time, but when you come out on the other side of that, you're like, I never would have gotten where I am today if it wasn't for that trial. I never would be who I am today if I hadn't went through the suffering. There is a purpose for it. We don't like it. It's not fun, but there is a purpose for it. Give thanks for that today because God has not forsaken you, child of God. He's working in your life. Look at this next one. For this is what? The will of God. God, what do you want me to do? Here you go. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God's will for us is to be a testifying people. It says His will is that by doing good, by living out this book every day in front of people, you are going to silence ignorant people. Everybody knows some ignorant people. Amen? You wanted to say it, I'll go ahead and say it for you. 
That doesn't mean we walk around arrogant. That doesn't mean that we walk around, stick our noses up in the air in self-righteousness. It means that if we know Jesus, we ought to be different. The world ought to look at us and not have to try to guess if we're saved or not. They shouldn't have to look at us and be shocked when they hear us say we're believers or we're going to church. You're going to church on Sunday? What in the world are you going to do there? They ought to see you living it out Monday through Friday, so they expect you to be at church on Sunday. You ought to be inviting them to come with you. But if they think you're just like them and worse, what on earth is your life saying to them? You see, we have got to be a testifying people. We should be a te- I don't mean we walk around and never blow it. Guys, we sin daily. We still need the same grace and the same gospel that saved us to sanctify us. But what I'm saying is we ought to be different. We ought not to have the affections for the things that we used to have affections for. We ought to not want to watch and do and go places that we used to want to go. It shouldn't be difficult for you to cut ties with some things if you're really serving Jesus. You ought to cut them loose because nothing in this world is going with you and nothing in this world is worth losing your soul over. We should be a testifying people. Look at this next one. For this is what? There it is again. You say, man, I didn't realize God talked about His will that much. It's in here. His Word is sufficient if we look at it. This is the will of God. Your sanctification being set apart that you abstain from sexual immorality. Boy, our culture needs to hear that today. There is so much. We are sex obsessed. It's everywhere. You can't watch a television show, a movie. You can't even watch a commercial anymore without sex being the theme of it. Every song is about sex. It's just so saturated our culture. But God's will is for us to be a transcendent people. What do I mean by that? It means that we got to live beyond this life. We are so focused on the now that we forget that there's an eternity coming. We're supposed to be laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven and all we're doing is running around trying to get as much stuff as we can get now. And we ought to live different. We ought to be set apart in the way that we think and the way that we live and ultimately what we're trying to accomplish here. There's nothing wrong with having stuff, guys. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house and a good job and buying his car and having a boat and doing all that stuff. But I'm just telling you that the more stuff you get, the more temptations you have to be pulled away from God. I've never seen anyone yet that doesn't struggle with self-control when they have a garage full of stuff and a driveway full of stuff and a house full of stuff and Sunday rolls around and all that stuff is calling your name and you say, I'm not going to take the boat out on the lake. It's 85 degrees and sunny, but we'll leave the boat in the driveway today and go to church. You're going to hook that boat up to the trailer and off to Cumberland or Brookville or Houston Woods you go. And you say, well, we'll just do it this week. We'll go to church next week. And then the weather's nice again. You say, well, two weeks isn't too bad. And then before you know it, it's become a habit. And God is silent because you drove your boat to the lake rather than seeking Him. And again, I'm not picking on people that do those things. You need some vacation time. You don't have to be here every time the doors are open. I don't expect that. But God should be first in your life. Even if you hop on the boat and go to the lake, you ought to thank God for the boat. You ought to give Him some praise out there on the lake. Amen? You should. We should be different. Last one. Look how Jesus prayed. Your kingdom come, your what? Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. God's will for us is to be a triumphant people. You know I pick on Baptist. I've been a Baptist all my life, so I'm allowed to pick on Baptist. Baptists don't always walk around like they're triumphant people. Baptists don't always walk around like they're joyful people. Now, I've told you, I'm not saying you come in here and fake it till you make it, put a smile on when you're dying inside. If you're broken today, I don't expect you to come up here and laugh and smile and giggle when you're falling apart. But I'm saying that when we come in here and God has been good to us, and hopefully you spend a little time with Him through the week, 
because you can't just show up here on Sunday and not spend any time with him through the week and expect to just flip the switch and get into worship mode. You worship in here on Sunday because you've worshiped him Saturday through Friday, through Friday, the rest of the week. Amen? You have to. Monday through Saturday. I'm sorry, I'm backwards on my days. And so you've got to understand what we're doing here. But there comes a point, guys, why are we always miserable? Like why, what is the reason why you have no joy in your life, why you're constantly down, why the glass is always half empty? What is going on? If you have God in your life, we're supposed to be triumphant people, not just get excited one day when we fly off to glory. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. The church on earth is the church in heaven, guys. It's going to be different up there, no doubt. But this ought to be a little taste of heaven down here when we get together. God's people ought to be able to worship Him down here like they're going to worship Him up there. I know we'll be unhindered up there, but we ought to be able to just get a little bit happy and excited about what God has done in our lives. Amen? His Word is sufficient. His will is specific. Last one, His Word is John chapter 14. And, and they're confused. Who wouldn't be? Right? And so he goes to them and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Well, that's easy to say, Jesus. You've been talking about leaving and we've given up everything to follow you. And here we are. What's going on? He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. deny Jesus three times, we wouldn't be in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when you read in Mark's Gospel, one of them runs away naked out of fear. It's in there. I'm not making it up. You read it and look. We wouldn't portray ourselves that way. We would be the heroes of the story. But over and over again, the Bible shows the real, raw reality of fallen, finite creatures like us.
God's fault. Because that guy said God was going to do something that God never promised he was going to do, and we blame God. Does that make any sense? No. No. It doesn't make any sense at all. Let's take God for his word, and I guarantee you his word will never fail. But if it fails, I would go back and check the source. Because if it was from God, it won't fail. And so Thomas is concerned. He says, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus is going to the cross, and if you follow Jesus, you're going to have a cross too. And that's where a lot of people tap out. That's where a lot of people say, I'm good with Jesus. I'm good with heaven. I'm good with all the good blessings and